Well, it was in large part due to the sale of indulgences, these pardons from purgatory, that Martin Luther in the year 1517 wrote and posted his 95 theses, these 95 talking points for debate, and posted them for academic discussion at the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. But it was not specifically the practice of indulgences that Luther was after. For indulgences were merely part of a a bigger problem in Luther's view in the Catholic Church. The bigger problem lied in the Catholic sacrament of penance. The sacrament of penance, which is still practiced by the Roman Church today, is a means by which the forgiveness and grace of God are extended to believers who sin after their baptism. Penance is necessary, says the Catholic, because all sin bears with it both guilt and punishment. Now, the guilt of sin may be absolved by confessing that sin to a priest, but the temporal punishment, the the stuff that is due your sin, must be paid either in purgatory or through works of penance, good works, works that show your contriteness of heart in this world, works that will shorten the length of time that a believer can expect to spend in in purgatory before going on to heaven. This official teaching of the Roman church, which legitimized the predatory and fallacious sale of indulgences, struck Martin Luther as dubious, to say the least. His own study of the scriptures had brought about his suspicion in the practice of indulgences, and particularly the, penance, uh, the, the sacrament of penance, because he found in his study of scripture a serious translational error in the official version of the Bible for the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin version, the Vulgate. His error, the error was noticed with regard to the word that we know as repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, means literally changing of the mind. But when Jerome, that is the one, the man who translated the Bible into Latin about 1100 years before Martin Luther, when he translated the Greek word repent, he translated it into Latin, uh, not as repent, but as do penance. This translational error went largely unnoticed and unchanged until Martin Luther, in the year 1516, got his hands on groundbreaking copies of the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament. Having learned Greek, he studied critical passages like Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus says, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is coming. And passages like Acts 2, 38, where Peter, at the end of his uh, first Christian sermon at Pentecost, when people are saying, what do we do with this news about the Messiah? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. So the issue becomes clear then, doesn't it? For sins to be forgiven, the requisite work on the part of the individual is not doing penance. It's not doing works and deeds that satisfy God's anger and punishment of sin. But rather, the work to be done is to repent, to have a mind that is changed and turned from desiring sin to desiring righteousness, desiring godliness, wanting the things that God wants, loving the things that God loves. It's a mind that understands that God's fulfilled promise of salvation in Jesus, and it's a mind that embraces Christ as Lord. So then penance as a sacrament, as a means of dispensing and receiving grace, being a non-biblical concept that flowed from a non-biblical doctrine of purgatory, fundamentally misconstrued what it means to have grace and to be saved. Martin Luther's rediscovery of the critical word and concept of repentance 
coupled with faith in Christ, led him and Protestants after him to affirm what we know as sola gratia, grace alone. This Protestant evangelical conviction that salvation, that forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God is only available as a gift of God, a gift from God. This discovery led Martin Luther to attack the sacrament of penance, even from the outset of his 95 theses. The first of his theses, the first of his talking points is this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, citing Matthew 4.17, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And secondly, this word, repentance, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. While Luther would gradually grow to reject the doctrine of purgatory altogether over the next decade of his life, he had already cast his lot firmly against any idea that the grace of God could somehow be earned or even meted out by sinful human agents. If salvation was truly by God's grace, only God could dispense it and only God could save So let us then, like our medieval friend Martin, turn to the scriptures to see this wonderful truth about how salvation is given and received by God's grace through our faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The book of Ephesians is a letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus. We know more about the church at Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. Paul spent a lot of time here, nearly two years ministering in the city. Uh, He addresses their elders in Acts chapter 19. Paul himself writes this letter to the Ephesians and two letters to Timothy, who is a chief elder, a lead elder in the city of Ephesus amongst the churches in Ephesus. Even John the Apostle, when he receives his uh, revelation from Christ, uh, uh, about which he writes the book Revelation, addresses a a short letter or a short address to the church in Ephesus as well. This letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, we call Ephesians, is split into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 3, gives a theological foundation, a theological basis and understanding for how it is that we are saved by grace through faith. And then chapters 4 through 6 give sort of practical outworking of what a life of faith in Christ looks like. And so here we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul clearly points out to us this doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word to explore and rediscover the truth 
of the salvation from sin that you give to us as a gift of your grace. God, would you open our minds and our hearts to receive what your word says to us this day? Give us grace to understand this morning, Father, and grace to apply your word to our lives. God, give us strength as those who walk in grace, knowing the the great gift that is salvation. God, to desire to communicate the wonderful gospel of Jesus and the gift of salvation and how that can be received by trusting in him with all those that we know that do not yet know Christ. God, let your word this morning and this understanding, this doctrine of grace, of salvation by grace alone. God, let it, is, let it spur us onto evangelistic mission and action in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sola gratia, grace alone. Salvation comes only as a gift of God is evident all through these 10 verses, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. First aspect of sola gratia that by grace alone that we see in verses 1 through 3 is that salvation comes by grace and not by human achievement. Salvation is not a human achievement. Paul is clear on this point. He says, you were, in verse 1, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a strong statement. But it finds perfect consistency with what we understand about the effects of sin. Sin is deadly. Sin kills us. It separates us from God. Sin dramatically and tragically changes what it means to be human. And for evidence of that, we only need to turn our attention to Genesis chapter 3 and the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Right there, Adam and Eve both disobey God's command not to eat of the fruit of the tree that God had forbidden. And in so doing, in so eating of that fruit, their eyes are opened and they become aware for the very first time the difference between good and evil. That to obey God is good and to disobey God is evil. For their sin, God curses both them and creation. Their relationship to one another will be strained. Women will experience great pain in Bearing children. Men will experience pain in, and frustration in working the ground to provide for their family. And all people, when they die for their sin, and all people will die for their sin, they will return to the dust from which they were created. More than that, Adam and Eve, as our first parents, are expelled from the intimate presence of God in that garden. They're separated from Him. Though God had created them to be sinless and with the ability to obey God for the love of God, in their disobedience, they forever broke that ability for themselves and for their offspring. See, in this way, sin is like a spiritual birth defect that all of us are born with. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, in sinning, became sinners. And we have all inherited from them that sinful spiritual disposition. We all from birth want things in our own way, in our own timing. The church father and great theologian, Augustine of Hippo, around the year 400, when he was writing and living, he even pointed to the selfishness, the apparent selfishness of all human beings. But just looking at infants, infants who have nursed and and nursed their fill, who their mothers pull them away to set them aside, begin throwing tantrums at the fact that they no longer get to eat and nurse, even though they've had their fill. Augustine says, even we see sinfulness and selfishness, even in infants. This is the problem of sin. As Paul says, in it, we are 
dead. Not barely hanging on to life, not merely hindered from being righteousness, but dead. Our status in sin is not as one who is flailing around in the ocean, weakened for treading water, needing only for someone to pull us out of our trial. No, our status in sin is as one whose lungs have already filled with water, whose heart has long quit beating, and whose lifeless body is already covered in barnacles at the floor of the ocean. We are dead in our sin. Dead men tell no tales, and dead men can do nothing about their deadness. In our sin, for which we are all guilty, we are the rightful recipients of a holy God's judgment for treason and rebellion against him. We are, Paul says, by our sinful nature, children of God's just and righteous wrath. We have a grave problem. Pun intended. We need salvation. We need restoration to the state where we can choose godliness and choose righteousness. As image bearers of the God who created us, we need to be in communion with our creator. We need to live, but we're dead. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, this is the problem of all humanity. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is your problem. Sin is my problem. Sin is the greatest problem facing the world today. All of us have committed it. We're all treasonous traitors against the king of the universe, God the creator. Not a one of us seeks righteousness or godliness or holiness on our own. David, the psalmist, king of Israel, says the same in Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3. He says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt There is none who does good, not even one. So we, like Adam and Eve, have earned for our sin the same consequence, death. Paul, again, in Romans 6.23, tells us that this is what we've earned. He says, the wages of sin is death. Do you see the gravity of the situation, friend? The problem is that you are dead in your sin. You can no sooner rise from the ocean floor, pluck off the barnacles, revive your heart, and expel from your lungs those gallons of seawater and live than an elephant can spread his wings and take flight to the skies. It just isn't possible. That was a Dumbo reference, by the way. (laughs) Christian this morning, friend this morning, Grasp and understand your total inability to stop sinning. Your total inability to pay the debt of sin you owe. Grasp and understand your total inability to live a holy life on your own like God. The Apostle Paul says throughout Romans 6 that we are slaves to sin. All of us, by our own choosing, by our own willful sinning, have sold ourselves to a master of deception who who has deceived us about what is good and best and right. And as slaves to sin, we approve as good those things that are evil and wicked. As slaves to sin, we are dead. There's a popular Catholic theologian in the 1300s, Gabriel Beale, who asserted that salvation worked as a pact, as an agreement between God and man. He said that God essentially says in this pact, uh, humans, you do your best and I'll meet you halfway. 
Now, this sentiment is certainly common among even secular spiritualists of our own day, right? We hear people say things all the time like, hey, look, I'm just trying to be a good person, and, and I know that God knows my heart, so as long as my good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then if there is a God, when I die and stand before him, he'll, he'll understand that I did my best, and I'm sure he'll be merciful. Friends, I know Christians that live this way. So-called Christians that live this way. They know something of God's holiness in the law that is in the Old Testament. And they try to live by that law, seeking to be moral, trying to be righteous, uh, attempting to acquire merit with God. But failing all the while to recognize that the law of God reveals both his perfect righteousness and our total depravity. Our total inability to be righteous like he is righteous. Look, if being moral were enough to save and it were possible to, in your own power, be perfectly moral to never commit a sin, why would God have ever given as a part of his law in the Old Testament the instructions for sacrifices to pay for sins? The sacrifice of animals among the people of Israel was a gift of God's grace to provide for them a way... Uh, for the, the sins of the people to be, ba- to be paid for by someone else, by something else. Because they could never, in their own ability, be as holy as God's law was calling them to be. But self-righteousness does not, can't ever save. Trying hard for God will never merit God's grace. Martin Luther, a few years after posting his 95 Theses, came to defend them amongst other like-minded monks who, who were beginning to see some of the, and understand some of the things he was writing about. And he wrote this uh, at that meeting. The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. Friends, there's not in the pages of Scripture, pages of God's Word, any agreement between God to help the one who helps himself. Rather, what we find is a consistent testimony that in our sin, we are totally and utterly helpless. This is very bad news. And this very bad news leaves us with a longing for that which we are incapable of producing in ourselves. I want to be right with God. I want forgiveness of my sins. I know that I can't achieve holiness, righteousness on my own. Whatever will I do? Knowing we are dead and separate from God, it is right to want to live and be rejoined to him. That, that burning in your heart to be reunited to God, to be better than you know you can be on your own, is a good thing. That, that, that pull within your soul is a good thing. But it's not anything that you can, in your own power, do. If we can't do this on our own, if we can't do this for ourselves... If we're helpless to achieve salvation, that thing that our hearts know we need more than anything, how are we ever to receive it? How can we ever, we who are dead in our sin, ever hope to live again? The answer, biblically, is by grace. That is literally because of grace. And in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 8, we see that grace is the cause of our salvation. Grace is the cause of our, our, our being able to live again. It's the very grammar of the text in Ephesians 2, 5 and 8 that we get this understanding. Now, in most of our English translations, we read Paul saying in verses 5 and verse 8, uh, By grace you have been saved. 
And this makes for a, an easy reading, a smooth reading of the text. And it certainly is faithful to the original language. But what we often don't dig deep enough into is that word that Paul uses, by, by grace. That word by is a preposition. Prepositions are, are, are words that indicate action. But that preposition itself, by, does not actually occur in the original language, in Paul's original writing. Rather, that preposition by is inferred from the case of the noun grace. Now, here I'm going to talk about some things that you don't really care about that much, but it's important. The word grace, that noun grace, in this text, in these verses, appears in what is called uh, the dative case in Greek. Now, in Greek, nouns have cases. They have different kinds of, they take on different kinds of forms to communicate different things about. There are four cases, nominative, genitive, dative, and accusative. We don't have cases like that uh, in English, but in Greek, there is. In Greek, the dative case in which this word grace appears uh, is a case of means. Put plainly, the use of the dative case here indicates for us that the basis of our salvation, the cause for the forgiveness of our sin, is God's grace. It is God's grace that causes us to be saved. And salvation while not something that we can affect for ourselves, must be something that is done to us or for us. Because you can't do it, someone else has to. If we're ever to go from being dead in our sins to living and united with God, something or someone has to act for us, has to act on us. And indeed, we do see someone acting on our behalf to cause us to live in these verses, don't we? Ephesians 2 verse 4, Paul says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is God who makes us to live again. It is God who does this by his grace, because of his grace, with the richness of his mercy, and because of his love for us. Paul underscores this again in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For by or because of grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how then are we to understand the nature of God's grace, this gift that he gives us? What is it? When in a generic sense, grace is defined as unmerited or unearned favor. But in a biblical sense, grace is God's loving kindness shown and extended to sinful, undeserving humans. God's grace toward us in Scripture has historically been identified in two different ways. The first is common grace. Common grace is the grace of God and the patience that He extends to all people irrespective of whether they know Christ, whether they are saved or not. The very fact that God does not put each one of us to death the moment that we sin is evidence of his common grace. But we also see around us other evidences of his common grace. The sun to warm us by day, the plants and animals that serve for food, the love of family, organized governments to work for the justice and the goodwill of the people. All of these are evidences of God's common grace, and we all benefit from them, whether we know and trust Christ or not. But there's a second aspect of God's grace that has been understood and identified in the course of Scripture and throughout history. That is not common grace, but saving grace. Saving grace is quite different from common grace. Saving grace is what Paul has in view here in Ephesians chapter 2. 
This is a sort of grace, the kind of gift that causes dead sinners to, lie, to, to live again. It is, in a very real sense, the means by which God reaches his hand into our spiritually dead hearts and begins to make them beat again. It is his uh, giving uh, spiritual sight to our blind eyes to see the truth of our sin. It's the opening of our deaf ears to truly hear and understand and apply and trust the gospel of Christ's death for sinners and resurrection from the dead. That's saving grace. All grace, though, especially saving grace, is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 says it. It is the gift of God. Now, the medieval Catholic church, of which Martin Luther found himself a member, had come to believe and to teach that the Pope and the highest ranks of the clergy held the keys to a sort of treasury of God's grace, a treasury of merit in heaven that that they could then dispense of at their own discretion and at their own authority. And they uh, dispensed of this grace through the various sacraments of the church, of which there are seven. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist or communion, penance, the anointing of the sick, holy orders, matrimony or marriage. All of these the Catholic Church saw as practiced by the people as uh, 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 giving divine life to all of those who would practice them. But as we've said, and as we've seen, Saving grace, according to Scripture here, is not by good deeds. It's not by stuff that we do. It's not by acts that we complete or accomplish, but by a gift of God. Now, a gift, by definition, is not something deserved or earned or bought, but it's a thing that's given out of the joy and love of the giver of the gift. Now, earlier this year, my wife and I purchased a new mattress. And at the mattress store, I don't know why that's funny yet. You haven't even heard the whole story. We bought a new mattress. And at the mattress store, they had a deal. You buy a mattress and you spend some extra money and you get a foundation or a box spring to put it on. You get a mattress protector. You get 87 pillows and protectors for all of those pillows. And, and, it's, and it's a good deal, right? So we paid for the mattress. We paid a discounted price for these other add-ons. And we went home and after about three and a half months decided we need a different mattress. So, because it just wasn't working. So we took advantage of the mattress stores. Uh, very, uh, not, not the mattress store, not the, the, the act, this is a different, this is an unnamed mattress store. This is not an endorsement. We went back to the mattress dealer to take advantage of their very generous return policy. You can sleep on the thing for four months, and if you don't like it, you, know, you take it back, you, get all your, you can get your money back. Like, that's great. We don't like this mattress, and we don't really want to shop around there anymore. Costco has a great deal on something. That is an endorsement for Costco. Uh, Costco has a really good deal on it, so we're going to do that. So we load up the mattress in the box, uh, box spring, strap it down on top of the van, drive halfway across town to take it back to their main store, uh, get the mattress and the box spring inside the store. I sit down with the manager to talk about uh, getting the refund. And initially he was very kind and he said, yeah, that's, that's fine. We can return it. Not a problem whatsoever. We'll, uh, we're going to refund you the, uh, the, the cost of the mattress less the discount for the other things. And I said, hang on a minute. On our invoice, it says, I paid this much for the mattress and this much for these pillows. And then there's like a, it just says sale event and there's a discount. It doesn't say that the discount is from the mattress. It doesn't say that I paid a discounted price on the mattress, but on these other things. He said, well, those other things are a gift with purchase. I said, a gift with purchase? To me, a gift is something you give me. 
But I paid for those 87 pillows and the mattress protector and all those. I paid for that. So why am I not getting the full amount of the of the mattress back? And he said, well, so I can't you can't just return the mattress and then keep all the other things at a discounted price. I'm going, I don't know why not. But anyway, the end of the day. The manager of the mattress store and I had a fundamental disagreement about the nature of a gift. Is a gift something that is given free of charge or or is a gift something you pay for but with a coupon? (laughs) Grace, salvation, is not a so-called gift with purchase. It isn't discounted goods. And it isn't in addition to what you bring to the table of merit between you and God. Grace that saves is freely given to all whom God is pleased to give it to. Not disregarding our deadness and sin, but in spite of it. His grace that saves is evident in the life of each person whose heart has been awakened and enabled by God to see and to know the gospel and to place their full faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning you might be asking, how do I know if God has given me this grace? How do I know if I'm the recipient of God's saving grace? Certainly it would seem that that this question is what the Catholic Church was trying to answer. The dispensing of grace for sacraments performed is a very visible, very tangible way of calculating grace. I do these sacraments, I did this much penance, I get this much grace. But Scripture knows nothing of grace dispensed this way. Rather, it knows of grace that saves by the, faith of, uh, by, by the faith and true trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior from sin. In the pattern of what looks like lifelong repentance from sin and doing the good works like loving your neighbor and caring for others that we in love for God and of his undeserved grace do for others. So you ask yourself the question, how do I know if, I've, if I'm the recipient of God's saving grace? I ask you two questions. Number one, are you trusting Jesus as Savior? Have you placed your faith in him? And number two, are you living each and every day a life of repentance? Every day changing your mind, turning from sin, turning again to God, turning again to Christ, desiring to walk in faithfulness to him. If your answer to both of those questions is yes, yes, I trust Jesus. Yes, I'm repenting. Friend, you are a recipient of God's saving grace. Okay, you think? I do trust Christ. I am walking in repentance. I answered yes to those Two questions. But why would God, why would God, even when I was dead in my sin, why would he cause me, a sinner, a rebel to the king, to live again? Why would he cause me to be saved? The answer, his love. His love. Look again at verse 4. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God, because of the love that he has for us, because of his mercy, his desire to lavish mercy and grace and love, even upon sinful people, causes us to live again. Consider also Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul writes, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why does God save people? Because he loves people. Do you see again, even in what Paul says in Romans 5, 8, the action of God to set his grace and love on you, not because you realized you needed it, but before you realized you needed it. This is why Paul can speak of grace as a gift. 
as something freely given. Because when we had nothing to offer God, nothing to bring to the table, no desire to please Him, no desire to love Him, He still set His love and His grace on us to help us see that apart from Him, we are dead. And by trusting in Jesus, we can have spiritual life overflowing. Know this this morning, Christian. All the grace that you will ever need to be saved has been given to you freely in Jesus. All that awaits for you to be saved today, friend who doesn't know Christ, is to trust Jesus. By grace you are saved through faith, Paul says. Faith is the conscious act of rejecting sin and self and placing Christ on the throne of your heart. Faith is not a work, faith is not a sacrament, but it's the way that God has given to receive salvation. You receive it by entrusting your life to the truth of the gospel and to God who has done all the work of salvation already for you in His Son, Jesus. Christian, if you know Jesus, you've tasted God's grace, would you begin to live like it if you're not already? Extend kindness and forgiveness to others, not because they owe you anything, but because you, tasting the infinite bounty of God's grace, desire to extend that to others as well. Do good. Love others, not for your own sake, not even for their sake, but for God's sake. And Christian, you can rest in the fact that you can know there is nothing left to prove to God and that He will not take His saving grace from you. Think about it. Think about it. If God would set his grace on you to awaken your soul to trust Jesus before you ever knew or cared to please God, how much more than having trusted Jesus and been united to Christ by faith, being forgiven of sin, how much more will God keep you steadfastly in his grace? If there's nothing that kept him from awakening your dead heart, your dead life to see the truth of Christ, that you might trust it, why would he ever take it away having already, been trust, having already trusted Jesus and been forgiven of your sin? Friend, you who trust Jesus, trusting in God's grace, resting in his grace, you are secure in your salvation. There's no need to worry. There's no work to do to prove your goodness to God. He's already declared you good because of what Christ has done. So rest in that. Rejoice in that. Salvation, grace, is not something that is humanly achievable. But it is a gift of God. It is the cause of our... God's grace is the cause of our salvation. And thirdly, in these verses, we see from Paul that God's grace to man, his gift of salvation, is in Christ, is located, is, is oriented around Christ. This church is a wonderful and beautiful doctrine. And I hope that you've already begun to see it in Scripture uh, as we've been looking through it already this morning. God's eternal purposes of grace, his intention of saving sinners, it's all squarely located in, oriented around his son, Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, we are made alive together with Christ, who was raised from the dead. Chapter 2, verse 6. We are raised from the dead with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. uh, Chapter 2, verse 7. We see that God saves us so that as time goes by into eternity, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 10. We see there that we who are saved as the result of God's divine... We who are saved are the result of God's divine craftsmanship part of his, his perfect restoration project, and we are created in Christ Jesus to do the works that Christ commands us. You see already that grace 
all around Christ, all about Christ, all, all rotating around him. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, where we also see this. Then verses 3 and 7, Paul says, we are blessed in Christ. In verse 4, we are chosen in Christ to be saved. In chapter 1, verse 5, we are predestined to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 1, the mystery of God's will and purposes of salvation we see are revealed to us in Christ. In verse 11, we have the inheritance of eternal life in Christ. In verse 12, our hope is set in Christ. In verse 13, our salvation is sure and sealed by the Holy Spirit as we believe in Christ. In verses 19 and 20, we see that God's work of salvation is worked in Christ. And in verses 22 and 23, we see that Christ is the ruler of all creation. He's the head of the church, which is the body of Christ. Jesus is the center. He's the the thing around which God's grace orients. All of this in in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 is pointing us and calling us to see that at the very center of God's plan to save sinful human beings is not you, is not me, but is His own Son, Jesus Christ. All we are, all that we have as believers is because of Jesus The whole of human history and salvation comes to its climax in the Son of God who, as Paul writes later in Philippians 2, though he exists eternally in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, there is no salvation apart from God's gift of it to us. There is no other agent, there's no other deliverer of God's grace than Jesus There is no way to know God's grace apart from Jesus' death, which paid for your sins, and apart from his resurrection from the dead, which justified you to God. Friend, there is no other way to receive God's grace, his forgiveness, his salvation, other than by placing faith in Jesus. Our great need before God is to have our dead hearts brought to life. The only way our hearts are brought to life is by God's loving gift which is mediated, which is purchased for us by His own Son, Jesus, God in the flesh. And we receive God's grace by trusting Christ. We receive the gift simply by trusting Jesus. There's no hope of salvation. There's no way of knowing God other than how He has chosen to give us salvation and other than how He has chosen to be known by us. And he has made himself known to us as the God who loves us by taking on humanity to die in our place. Because God's grace to us is perfected in Jesus who died for sins on the cross. There is now then, Christian, there's no longer guilt. There's no longer punishment for sin for the one who trusts in Jesus. This is really good news. Earlier we said there's really bad news in the fact that we're dead in our sin, but this is really good news. The really good news is that for the believer in Jesus who sins, even after they've placed faith in Christ, even after they've been baptized, there there is no more guilt, no more punishment awaiting them. 
As Christ took on the wrath of God against our sin on the cross, we who are in Christ are no longer children of God's wrath, but sons. Sons by his grace. Daughters by his grace. There is no waiting purgatory. There is no waiting punishment for you if you trust Jesus because he's already received that punishment in your place. More than that, there's no longer even any guilt for sins committed, even after you've been converted and baptized. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. No longer condemnation for anyone who has received God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. This means that spiritually, you can rest, you can breathe, you can have joy in knowing that you don't have to do more stuff to prove your worthiness, to prove your holiness, to prove your purity before God. Because by His grace, your debt of sin has already been paid in full. It's finished. It's done. Because of God's grace in Christ, we are saved then. Not, not because of good works, but to do good works. To do God-glorifying things in this life that He in His grace has purposed, has intended for us to do. It is by grace you are saved through faith. Grace alone, sola gratia. Salvation is only uh, as a free gift from God's own hand. In February of 1546... Martin Luther was laying in bed, uh, recovering, though he would not, ultimately, from a massive heart attack. He, like any good man, never told his wife that he had the heart attack until it was so bad. But he, there on his deathbed, he lay among family in his dying moments. And there, in that time, he took and scribbled on a little piece of paper and stuck in his pocket that his family found later these words. We are beggars. This is true. If you understand that phrase, you understand Martin Luther. If you understand that phrase, you understand the heart of the Reformation. If you understand that before God, you have nothing to offer and no righteousness of your own, no holiness of your own. If you understand that at the feet of God, you are totally at his mercy, then you are beginning to understand the depth of the phrase sola gratia, grace alone. Friends, God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who are helpless, desperate, dead in their sin. We are beggars. This is true. But thanks be to God that he has freely given grace and salvation to lowly beggars like us. Christian, do you know God's grace? Are you resting in God's grace, trusting in it, walking in it every day? Friend, you who are here this morning, feels far from God. You don't know Jesus. You're dying, literally, spiritually dying to, to be saved, to be right with God. Would you trust Jesus today? See that all that all that God desires to give you, all that he desires to make you is given to you freely as a gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it, nothing to prove yourself worthy of receiving it. All you do is trust in Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. Through faith, believe Jesus. Believe Jesus.